the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Catholic community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz, and today my guest is Peter Land from Philadelphia. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing well. Thanks, Malcolm. It's great to be here and join you. Our topic for today is uh, community, and especially why community is important to living the Christian life and to spreading the Christian life. Why we can't just focus on our individual uh, spiritual growth, um, on living a good Catholic life by ourselves. Well, I think, first of all, it touches on the nature of being human and how God created us. That he created us, and, and actually who God is in himself as a relationship of persons, um, as, as the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and creating humankind in his image, and therefore uh, us being inherently relational, relational with our God and relational with each other, in need of other people for the fulfillment of who we're called to be of our potential. I love that saying that no man is an island. It seems to me that separated from, from the relationships that we're called into, we can easily wither in a, in a sense, like a plant without sunlight, without water. But in connection with others, our person can unfold and grow and learn and develop and become and also experience God, to me, there's a sense of that we, we need God in order to become truly who we are, who God made us to be. So that's an initial thought. Yeah, you know, it, it, it relates to what I've often thought about how you'll hear people talking about being a self-made man mm-hmm. and how that's actually a ridiculous concept because no man made himself. Even the most rugged individualist will realize that he had to have parents, had to be supported through the first few years of life, and probably not just parents, he had to have a wide community that created a stable society for him to grow up in. And then, since grace builds on nature, since in the natural order, in, in the physical order, we need a community to just to survive, to come to be, uh, and that grace builds on that, and that Christ came to found a church. He didn't come just as a teacher with a bunch of good ideas that individuals could pick up. He came to found an entity, a church, a community, a new society that we were supposed to bring others into. Christian community is a pretty hot topic right now. Everyone's discussing how we should do it, whether it's important, and what relate and one of the things that's often presented is that on the one hand there are the people who emphasize community and on the other side there are people who emphasize evangelization and outreach so do you have any thoughts on the juxtaposition of those two concepts well it's interesting because it seems to me that both of those elements um ought to be tied together and that you really, you can't have evangelization 
and outreach, uh, or at least adequate evangelization, without some sense of um, rootedness in a community, and at least in my opinion, and I think the the community itself becomes a much more powerful communication of the the witness or the um, the point of evangelization, which is to bear witness to the saving grace and love of our God. It seems to me that that very message is manifested most clearly in a community of brothers and sisters caring for each other, loving each other. The message of salvation needs to be manifested in a in a living community, like a, a living relationships um, and everyday life, not just presented to the world as a message. It needs to be experienced. I think more and more and more we're seeing people reflect on that, the necessity of um, belonging and sharing life in community and seeing seeing that that community as a witness for the message of Christianity. You know, uh, there's that quote, um, this is how they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one of no- another. Yes, that, that's a, a really good point and, and one I've thought about a lot. Uh, there's this saying in the army, which goes that if something happens once, it's an accident. If something happens two times, it's a coincidence. And if something happens three times, it's an attack. And, mm-hmm. and so the idea being that uh, for, for the applicability to the Christian community, that if the world sees somebody acting in a way that the world would consider a little unusual, they think, well, that's odd. And if they see, you know, two people acting that way, oh, that's that's really odd. And if there's a bunch of people acting that way, they might think, you know, what is this? This is this is something real. This isn't just an accident. What are these people doing? They'll be interested. But then also that idea that the Christian message, the word of God was not just words. The word of God was a person, an incarnation, and that we have to incarnate the Christian message. So even beyond its utility for evangelization, which is great, there has to be that incarnational dimension in which we become the Christian message. We become the body of Christ, as especially as seen in the Eucharist, but that should flow into our lives. We, in one sense, are one with the message that we bring. We, we become the message. And, and that's a very, very fascinating thought. It's not that we shouldn't talk about our faith, but if it just stays at that level, no one will really listen, I think. Right. Yeah, community can't be dismissed so easily. Or the the reality or witness of a community living out the Christian life and message together um, cannot be so dismissed as a simple message about salvation. Because like you said, it's kind of grounding the message in reality. And it gives people um, an an opportunity to experience what they're speaking of. Um, because I think a lot of people are longing for community in the world. There's so much isolation, um, division, um, alienation, 
And, and so people are, are trying to find community in different ways. But I think often communities apart from Christ end up failing or falling short in a number of ways. I mean, we're just as in our nature, broken, tainted by sin and selfishness creeps in and people just, I think, can become jaded. Um, and I think Christians all too often actually fall into that. You know, our parish communities, our churches, how often are they bearing witness to kind of a supernatural life in their midst in which other people are welcome? Yeah, that's that's a really good point because I've, I've often thought about how our parishes are now just sacrament stops, really. I mean, there might be a coffee and donut hour, but outsiders will not really feel welcomed. And uh, we were talking to a woman who had a lot of experience with uh, evangelical communities, Protestant communities. And she said that there, when she would go to the church, she would be greeted by someone and they would, tr they would really try and pull her in, make her welcomed, and connect her with small groups or whatever was going on. And it wasn't, you know, of course, it was a really good way to grow their numbers, but it wasn't as cynical as that. It was that was how they felt it should be as well. And, and it did work to grow the community. And then on the other hand, she did eventually become a Catholic. And when she came to a new Catholic parish, no one greeted her. No one tried to plug her into what was going on. There was this idea, you know, you, you go to mass, you worship together, and then you walk home. And I've also thought just even on the worldly level about our lack of community in which one of our neighbors could be starving down the street and we would never know it because we wouldn't know the neighbor to start with. And even if we did, we wouldn't know them well enough to know they were starving. I've talked to a man who grew up in the ethnic ghetto communities on the East Coast in an Italian tenement building in which a large extended family inhabited the different floors of a tenement. And he said they were all very poor working in the factories, but nobody was ever going to go hungry in that community. If someone ran on hard times, they were going to be taken and fed by somebody in that block of people. And that's just a natural level community. That's what everyone has always lived in. I think one, one thing I found when I, when I try to explain community to other people is they imagine I'm talking about, uh, say, a lay, lay monastic movement. And that those things can possibly be good, but I think the ground level has to be at least the level of community that natural societies tend to exhibit. We Christians are not even up to the natural level that most societies have had. And since grace is supposed to call us a level up, how can we do that when even the natural level seems sort of exotic and strange? Imagine interacting with your neighbors on that intensive a basis. Right. It's, on one hand, um, we live in a really challenging time precisely because of the wealth that our society has amassed, which allows us to live um, seemingly self-sufficient lifestyles. And I think that's a key word is seemingly because it's not actually self-sufficient. We're dependent in so many ways on things outside of our control. And that goes back to um, an earlier point, obviously, that you made, Malcolm, about just obviously we come into this world through uh, others. 
but but now we're kind of under this we're living under this illusion of sorts that i mean we well we do have the capacity to be very independent and that allows us to pick and choose our relationships at will but relationships that are not really grounded on a on common necessity which is i think something that you're kind of referring to in like human the history of human community is that people were were kind of by necessity grounded together to provide collectively for their needs no one person or generally speaking single singular persons wouldn't just go out and build their own homes and provide all their own food like it, that would have been an an aberration from the norm um it's so much easier when many hands are involved in the various needs that we have to live fulfilling lives and here in uh america and in kind of western culture we have every you know we the material needs are easily met but that in a way isolates us um from having really authentic relationships with the people down the street you know because they're not necessary to us and i think this is part of the problem with christian communities is that when something comes up you know you can leave and find another church and join another small group but there's no um there's no like deeper solidarity that grounds people to each other i've heard it put that choice is the opposite of culture and that where everything is a choice even belonging to a particular community a particular parish um becomes just another choice and a choice can be unmade at any time there is no commitment because there doesn't have to be uh, and i i really think there's a important point you touched on there about having to work together to maintain a living i've found that the best community building activity is some sort of physical work together to some sort of productive goal even though the people don't have to participate in this particular project whatever it might be the experience of working together can bridge the sort of ideological divides that might be present the people might have nothing in common but the shared work gives them immediately something in common that they can relate through and that's an interesting point we talked really about incarnation and the oldest enemy of christianity were the gnostics they believed that matter was evil and that it was all the spirit and because it was all the spirit christianity was all about gaining a certain kind of knowledge a certain kind of secret knowledge and we see that our religious discourse is becoming that way it's becoming very spiritualized you could say oddly enough you could say that social media is spiritualized because the physical aspects of our lives don't affect it people would usually not behave as terribly as they do on social media if they were working with somebody uh, in the same environment it just wouldn't be as likely to the the discourse would not be as likely to go that wrong that brings up another point that being self-sufficient in american culture is actually considered a virtue instead of a vice there is this idea that there's actually something good in not depending on other people that there's something wrong in being dependent nobody wants to be dependent 
And it was probably because American culture has this myth of the frontier, the noble pioneer alone with his gun and his axe against all the forces of nature, covering civilization or the wild, and not beholden to anyone or anything. I know in Europe, it's still somewhat different that they've, they, their communities have broken down to a certain degree, but there's still pockets of a different spirit. I was talking to a friend who was going to live in Rome for his job for a year, and he had a, a wife and small child. And so they wanted to rent an apartment. They'd been living in a hotel. And so he met with the owners and the owners said, well, let's go out and have dinner and we'll talk about it. But they didn't. They had dinner and they talked about everything under the sun except the terms of a lease. And then the, the owner said, well, I'll see you tomorrow, leaving the conversation no farther forward than it had been. So they saw them again. And this time they went over to their house and had dinner. And again, there was a fascinating conversation about all sorts of topics, but no further mention was made of renting the apartment. And after a week of this, my friend started to get impatient. You know, when was he going to be able to sign the lease on this apartment he needed? Well, it turned out that this was how the landlord vetted tenants. You'd have to know them, of course, and, and this was not unique to this landlord. This was the way things were done. Um, some kind of what we would consider just a, you know, an economic financial transaction was done over the course of meals and conviviality and getting to know the other person. And so eventually the landlord came around to discussing the actual terms of the lease. And that was just how things moved there. It was much slower, but much more human. And incidentally, probably uh, made sure that the landlord ended up with a better uh, idea of who was actually renting his apartment and whether they would put holes in the walls. But that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was that in that culture, there was still the necessity was seen of having a certain amount of relationship. It was not considered a virtue to be isolated and autonomous. Yeah, wow. That's a beautiful um, point and story, one which I really appreciate. I, um, it makes me think of a friend I, I had who told me about his experience of just eating, simply eating in Italy, and how different of an experience it is in, um, in comparison to how we eat in America. But the focus on kind of the evening meal in Italy was so much more relational. Um, food really aided this um, connection that was being facilitated. Like there were small portions that we brought out um, repeatedly over the course of a couple hours. Um, so people wouldn't eat a whole lot of food at any one point, but it would be like a continual appetizer um, that really aided the event of coming together, aided the encounter with one another. And the purpose was enjoying time together and not getting on to what's next, where often I think that's like for us, we eat like so quickly. And um, it's kind of like, okay, what's everybody doing next? Or even if we're eating together, if it's just alone, we might be okay, I'm getting my food out of the way. And now I'm on to the next part of my agenda. That's one point I had about in response to the, what you were speaking of. A second point is um, what came to mind was St. Paul's hymn to the word of God uh, in Philippians, where he speaks of Jesus did not deem equality with God 
something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. The reason I bring this up is because of this inherently relational aspect that Jesus humbled himself and became really entirely dependent as a human being, as a baby, you know, uh, conceived in a womb and born as um, born in poverty, born as a baby, humbly dependent on human parents um, and participating in every aspect of what it means to be human. And so he presents to us a a humility to be lived out that is inherently dependent, dependent on the on on the Father for everything, for His will, for His direction, but then dependent on um, His own human community. And so I think it's it's valuable that you bring up this element of um, humility and dependence, and something as Christians that we should really reevaluate in light of community, the community in which we are called, you know, um, that it's, it's not something to be afraid of, to be dependent on each other and to foster relationships that really include like an interdependence. And then finally, uh, Malcolm, it's just, and this kind of continues off that theme, but the incarnational reality of the word of God and that very, the physicality of his life on earth versus the kind of increasingly virtual and technological life of our day, um, which in which I think community is cannot really be fostered. You know, it's something you were talking about how people are much more likely to slander a person repeatedly um, through social media because uh, I guess because of just the 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 mode of how that can be accomplished versus when they're in relationship with them, uh, physically speaking, and how more difficult it would be because you could encounter the the person and all their needs and all their weakness and um, how may how much more uh, I don't know disheartening it might be to to do something like that face to face. So I guess I'm just thinking of um, the technological world that we're, we increasingly find ourselves in and how in no way can it really replace the community that Jesus invites others into. Um, and even in his life, how he invited people to follow him and they followed him along the roads of the Holy Land. They walked with him. They ate with him. They breathed the air with him. And it kind of touches on that point of working together, you know, working with our hands maintaining a life together that requires proximity our, our bodies being connected that that is a really good point especially the idea of the humility of god who allowed himself to be taken care of both uh, in his in his earthly life but then even afterwards by making himself one of us that anything we do to our brother is done to him he made himself able to be damaged and he was hurt. I mean, this is the result of the humility of God is the crucifixion. But the flip side of that is because he's able to be hurt, he was able to be helped. We could give him something. As God, very remote, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, he demanded the sacrifices because it was good for the people to make sacrifice. But he did tell them, 
I don't need your sacrifice. Do you think I eat bulls and goats? I'm not hungry. But as a man, he was hungry. He needed to be fed and cared for. And that friendship is dependent on being able to reciprocate. And a certain ancient thinker posited that man and God could never be friends because God didn't need anything from man. Man needed everything from God. And so God wanted us to be friends. And the only way he could be friends with us is by making himself needy in a way, making himself need our care both when he was on earth and now through the mystical body. And then to, to swing back around when you, to the topic of eating as community, it's, it's uh, definitely a, what I, I don't remember who it was. So, someone said that it could be considered a material sacrament. But you mentioned that in Italy, eating is very different. And that reminds me of a story I read about an environmental campaigner who went across the United States campaigning against single-use coffee cups. Everyone goes and grabs their cup of coffee in a styrofoam or paper cup and then heads off to their car and drives down the road or walks down the sidewalk while drinking it. And the cup ends up as trash, oftentimes as litter, but even if it doesn't end up littered around, it's a waste of resources. So he was, was campaigning for recyclable um, containers for coffee and other beverages that were taken to go and for effective recycling programs to make sure they got recycled. Then he went and gave the same speech in Italy, in Italian, of course, and everyone just roared with laughter because no one in Italy, he found out later, would ever think of going and taking their coffee in a disposable cup and drinking it while they're walking down the sidewalk. That would be considered crazy. That was what tourist Americans did, and only tourist Americans. It, they didn't need recyclable mm -hmm. containers because in the coffee shops, they had ceramic uh, mugs that would be washed because you would sit around and drink your coffee while talking and, and being part of the local community in the coffee shop. Uh, and, and just the, interest, the interesting thing about that story to me is that the issue that this man was working on didn't even exist because of their different way of relating to life. Because they had a life centered on community, they didn't have to worry about uh, phasing in recyclable coffee cups and all the and, and probably many more important issues would not be a problem if we were less detached from one another. Yeah, it makes me think of um, what Pope Francis has referred to as a throwaway culture in America that has emerged from our very individualistic lifestyle. Um, everything is kind of for me or revolves around me and my convenience as, and, and our time, whereas you're speaking of um, a culture that's differently ordered. You know, it's ordered relationally and um, I guess towards a, a different type of good, you know, a good that in which others are involved. I think in America, it's like, I think it gets, really gets back to this lack of community in so many different ways. Um, and this kind of focus on the individual, which leads to uh, not just a throwaway culture, but I think our, our fast food culture, our kind of focus on immediate gratification, 
you know, we're, we're lacking the joy that comes from actually having uh, relationships of quality. And to fill that lack, I think we, we need to be constantly filling it with things that bring kind of immediate gratification, but that don't, don't last. And therefore, we're drinking coffee, 10 cups of coffee a day, you know, as we're walking, as we're in the car, you know, we need something to keep us going. Whereas perhaps in Italy or in Europe, um, there's more of a, a slowness of life that cultivates a quality of life. I think there's a real need to get back to, um, there's actually a movement, I think, in Italy, like the slow food movement. And maybe it's growing here as well or gaining traction. But food is very, I think, representative of our culture. And a lot of the things we're talking about, I know it's not the, the most important thing, but it does speak volumes about uh, what we value and how we live. Yes, and, and food in and of itself, just by the fact of eating, even alone, it shows us that we're dependent beings. I've heard someone say that the actual purpose of fasting in the Christian tradition is to show you that you can't survive for very long without food that you gain from the external world, from the work of others, and from ultimately from the blessing of God, that we're radically dependent. And you're also very right, I think, in bringing up the ways in which we have to compensate ourselves for not having a meaningful community and therefore in some ways not having a meaningful life. We turn to uh, drugs of various sorts, whether you know hard or soft, even just all the, the coffee drinking or social media use. And that brings up a, a point too that I have thought about in that as our society becomes somewhat less able to provide a materially sufficient individualistic life, community will make a comeback, but it might be the wrong kind of community in that when a culture starts to go under stress, as our culture seems to be doing, what usually proliferates are um, cults of various sorts, religious or not, and gangs. And cults and gangs are the evil counterparts of true community. They provide in a flawed way some of the goods of community. And when a more individualistic culture begins to fail and people need to look for security to something, they often turn to gangs and cults. I'm thinking um, even of something like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They tend to target people who are alone and who need community, they provide that community, and so they get this allegiance to their group from people who otherwise might have not been interested in their theology, in what they had to offer. And so if we Christians, if we Catholics do not provide the true Christ-centered community that we're called to do, the void will be filled. Uh, an individualistic culture like this can't survive for very long, but the void will be filled by very ugly things. Even certain kinds of political movements that have a, a gang-like or cult-like feel tend to thrive in individualistic cultures as they decline. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. We're seeing, um, I think, a proliferation of like quasi-community in our current day 
communities that are really um, self-appointed or, or we have the opportunity right now to really choose continuously the people that we surround ourselves with, um, especially virtually and technologically, the people that share our own interests and likes, but it's not really um, an authentic community. You know, it's a community that, um, you know, to go back to, like you, you mentioned before, you know, choice is like the opposite of culture. Um, so when we're constantly choosing, even the, the people that we want in our lives, it, it doesn't, I think, reflect um, reality. And in a, in a Christian community, I think what's beautiful is that you have people from all different walks of life, many different backgrounds, young and old, rich and poor, different ethnic uh, ethnicities, and you're coming into contact with people who might challenge you in various ways. You know, we're not, we shouldn't be all of the same political mindset in a church community um, or in a neighborhood, you know, and, and there's just going to be various personalities that conflict. But I think that it's through that kind of the messiness of community and coming together with people on a on a, a shared system of beliefs and love for our creator and intention with an intention to love each other that I think the human person will really find much greater satisfaction and, and fulfillment. But it's, it, it is more painful. You know, you, you mentioned earlier how encounters with people can be not only challenging or difficult, but cause a lot of pain. I mean, we think of just the life of Christ, and he was crucified by the very people he came to. Um, and I think there's going to be an element of that in any authentic community, but it seems to me that it's very, it's very much in and through that process that we are transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ and into the love that God has called us into. For one thing... We shouldn't expect perfection if we're going to set out to build community. We shouldn't be too idealistic about it because we will then really be disappointed. I've been looking at intentional community projects, whether Christian ones or secular. And as well as uh, individualist culture, America has generated and always has generated lots of intentional community attempts. For instance, uh, the writer... Hawthorne was part of an intentional community that he absolutely hated after being there for a year. And one problem, as you touched on, is that if we surround ourselves with people just like us, it's not really a true community. It's sort of a clique or might eventually become something like a cult. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said that a village is broad-minded and the great city is narrow-minded because in the great city, there's enough of any type of person so that they can go and join a club of people just like them and everyone has their separate meetings, their separate clubs. In the village, he said, you'll have one or two of each kind of person and they will all have to meet at the one local pub and argue it out until two in the morning. And mm -hmm. so the city actually ends up narrowing people because of that ability to only hang around with those who are just like them. And that brings up a really important point. If we're going to try to build community, we have to be 
very careful we don't just become one of those cults that uh, we talked about earlier. And I've been wondering how, you know, how to avoid it since some Christian communities I know of started out with excellent intentions and became dangerous cults. And one thing I thought of that might help to prevent this is not to base the community on fear of the outside. I know that some community building attempts are created because the individuals involved want to surround themselves with only people who are living the Christian life like they are, they're afraid of the world, and so they want to eliminate the influence of the world as far as possible. And while it's true that our faith has the right answer, and in some ways the world right now has the wrong answer, I think that if we set out basing ourselves on fear, on fear of the outside world, that we will not build a healthy community. We will build one of those cliques or cults instead, because we will end up trying to only surround ourselves with people who are just like us. There's an excellent book I read a number of years ago called The New Parish, and it was uh, authored by three various um, Christian men who had toured the country to find out where Christian communities and Christian parishes were thriving. And one of the major aspects they touched upon in the communities they found that were that were doing well was this idea of local community in the in the place in which the church was planted. Um, that the that the people were grounded in the neighborhood in which they were living and were connected to it, not simply just um, not simply just with each other, but with the other people who are living there. You know the the everyday folks of the neighborhood, and they mentioned this idea of faithful presence, and that these churches were exhibiting a trait of faithfully being present to the place in which they were living day in and day out on a regular basis. They weren't just driving in and out like a, you know, a strip mall church or a strip mall lifestyle. These were, these were often neighborhoods and cities, or I think small towns in which people were coming into contact, going to the, the local coffee shop or pub regularly, maybe working in community gardens together, with people who did not share their faith, but with whom they could um, still share life with and collaborate on good initiatives with and, um, you know, bear witness to who they are. You know, like you were just talking about fear, you know, how fear can prevent us from coming into contact with somebody who's not like us. But I think the faith, our faith, invites us, encourages us, really demands us to engage the world out, outside of us. And in a way in which we are, um, we, we feel the security of the love of God, like with the love of God, we can go, we can go forth and engage and encounter the world. But I was really struck by this, the message of this, the kind of emerging churches that they, that they found that were more locally rooted. And this is very much the theme we're, we're speaking of. And, you know, I, I would like to continue talking about the, um, the importance of actually the place in which we live as being central to the cultivation of an authentic Christian community. 
Yes, I would say, just, just as a piece of practical advice, if a community building attempt involves a lot of people moving across the country to build it, it is almost certainly going to be a disaster. I've experienced that in my own life. I've read about others who have experienced it. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a hippie commune or a Catholic model village, there is going to be trouble, almost certainly. Because by the very your very first action is a symptom of our rootless culture, of our ability to choose whatever we want. And starting out from that sort of pride will almost guarantee the the eventual failure of the community. The lucky ones are the ones that just fall apart. The unlucky ones are the ones that turn into cults. And th this reminds me, a few years back, I was lamenting the lack of local community and the difficulty of building a community to this old uh, hippie that I know. And in many ways, he's pretty crazy. But this time, he really said something interesting. He said, look around you. You live in a community right now. And then he said, it might be a pretty dysfunctional one, but it's still a community. And ever after that, I've kept that idea because I tend, you know, to disparage the suburban setting in which I live and all the structural problems with it and all the flawed viewpoints of the people who live in it. And that's all true. And they all need to be addressed. But if I forget that, nonetheless, this community, dysfunctional as it is, is the one I'm currently living in, the one I'm called to go on mission to, I'll miss the boat. I won't end up achieving what I want to achieve. Yes, Malcolm, I think that's such a great point. Like, community begins at home, where we are, because it's, it's not something simply external it, it needs to develop from within it needs to be an attitude that we cultivate almost a virtue like community kind of grows out of a virtue in which we are open to relationship in which we um engage others i mean i think of just when i visit home and my parents they live in a, a suburban neighborhood you know connections are formed when i walk through the neighborhood and say hello to people and sometimes people are walking and and we stop and we have a little connection and we share, you know, how life has been and what kind of dog they have and get to get to know them just a little bit. And when that happens on a regular basis, I'm forming a connection that is building something. And maybe before long, and this has happened, people will invite the other over to their house for a meal, for a drink, for a greater moment of intimacy. Um, and I think about in the suburban landscape too, because a lot of us are living in that, you know, that type of setting that there are a lot of opportunities to cultivate community. Like I think of the local library near my parents' house and there's events and activities and groups meeting there throughout the week, uh, pre COVID, of course, um, a philosopher's group, a knitting group. Um, events regularly that people would host, um, a mother's group and children. You know, there's there's places, public places to get involved. And then, of course, there's the public parks. For me, there's a need to develop relationship. 
um, authentic relationships and friendships. It's almost like before we can really get to a place of actual community, we need to actually find just like friend friends to do life with, to ha to share life with, and not become a clique, but become um, open to befriending the people around us in our on our on our streets, in our neighborhoods, um, in the public places that we can all visit. That's, that's so important, and there's a tension in that that we need to preserve. We can't eliminate the tension by going to one side or the other. So on the one hand, we're called to really radically live the faith in such a way that, you know, the surrounding world will probably think we're strange. We have to really live the gospel as it is. On the other hand, we can't ignore the people who don't, whether they are fellow Catholics who are not living out the fullness of the faith or non-Catholics around us. And they have to have a place in our community. In, in the, of course, the hope would be that, you know, an unrealistic hope perhaps, but the hope would be that eventually everyone in our local community would be living out the gospel message. But the first step has to be being there for them in a community. Because we, we talked about fear a little earlier and how if a community starts out in fear of the outside, it will probably become a cult if it, if it ever succeeds at all. And I'm thinking about the early Christians. Christ didn't come and found monasteries, you know, places where people escaped the world. He came and founded a missionary society that went out to the world. And that world was going to kill almost every one of them. And even so, even at that extreme of hostility from the world, they couldn't react in fear. You know, they could have went and lived in caves around the Dead Sea or something and, and had a happy life uh, reading their texts and, and having interesting discussions with one another, and probably no one would have ever bothered them. They certainly wouldn't have gotten murdered for doing that. But that wasn't what they were called to do. And monasticism, which is an important part of Christianity, developed later once the world was already Christianized. I think people often forget that when Benedict went out and founded his monastery, the Roman Empire had been largely Christianized. There were still pagans around, but Christians were the majority. Christians weren't going to be persecuted anymore, unless they eventually started persecuting one another, which, of course, had already started to happen with the Arians. But they weren't going to be persecuted by a hostile pagan world anymore. And that is when Benedict went out and started Western monasticism as an outgrowth of an already Christianized culture. But we live in something a lot more akin to the earlier, early church, in which the world is hostile, the world doesn't understand us. And we could just go away and build monasteries or lay monasteries or quasi-monastic um, institutions and hope that the world comes and knocks at our door to find out what it's all about. But that's very unrealistic. That's never how the faith was spread historically, whether in, in modern mission countries or there in the early church. It was spread by those who did not live out of fear, who lived out of love for all these people who may be objectively making the wrong decisions, but the early Christians, the modern missionary, loves those people nonetheless and goes and lives with them. Yeah, this for me brings up um, a theme that I think um, requ will require, may, will become an ongoing part of this conversation. And I think that's the balance between engagement in the world 
versus or along with kind of the internal structure and integrity of a community life, if any. Um, it seems to me that, well, to go back to your earlier point about St. Benedict, there is this element that he went, he was sent to Rome by his family to study. And while it may have been a Christian, Christianity was obviously introduced to and had been alive in Rome for centuries at that point, he was horrified at, at the culture that he found there, the immorality and the debauchery. It was really um, a dying culture, a dying Christian culture. And he left Rome and left the, his, the academic circle that he found himself in, according to, I think, the biography, in order to save his soul, to seek salvation. And he never really intended to found a monastic community. He actually began living as a hermit. And other, other hermits were in the area and they were attracted to him. And ultimately, community developed out of this desire to seek salvation. I only bring that up because there, there's this need, I think, to, to recover the reality of the danger of the world in which we live and not succumbing to um, what seems normal and acceptable around us, you know, the, the kind of Western cultural lifestyle. And that's why I, I, I just referenced this kind of tension between engagement in the world but kind of like internal integrity, because we need to develop um, a personally a, a life, but also collectively that tends to reinforce um, our communion with Christ, our, our, our life of prayer, a life of virtue, a life of service, and, and worldly influences can detract us from that to such a degree that we really we're not offering people a message because we, we end up living the same life that everybody else lives. And so people find themselves wondering, well, why, why would I join, you know, what, what is it about you that makes me want to join the church or, or, you know, this message that you might be proclaiming? Um, it sounds good, but like, what's, what's the reality of it? You know, what's, where's the power of it? is uh, something that St. Paul speaks of, you know, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but it's um, a matter of power. So I think that that's an important distinction, you know, is like, while, while we are called to engage and to be part of the world around us, I think we're living in a time in which certain monastic principles would be really valuable to recover. And this need to actually like, to have some kind of separation, not physically speaking, but internally from the influences and the elements of the world. Very true, and it is a hard thing to figure out how to keep both principles. I think one thing that's helped me is that there's, in my experience, two views of monasticism uh, prevalent in the church. And one is that the monk is the man who wants to protect himself from the corrupting influences in the world. And the other um, understanding is that the monk is the one who wants to give up the good things of the world for love of God as a sacrifice. And they're both valid. 
and they've both been there from the very start. I think, though, that one of the one of the keys to getting healthy monasticism, and this is pretty presumptuous of me since I'm not a monk, but certainly if we're going to borrow from monasticism to structure our communities, the aspect oriented towards love has to be predominant. The other aspect will be there, but it has to be secondary because if we see ourselves as acting out of a love for God and for our neighbor, whether the other members of the community or those outside the community, then the, the healthy fear, like the fear of the Lord, will be able to take its proper place. But if the fear is the dominant aspect, the love probably will not hold up. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Um, that love needs to be the dominant principle. It's not an either-or situation in which, you know, it's just one or the other, because love invites us when love is dominant it invites us to a healthy renunciation a healthy a healthy separation at times um for a greater good kind of like the one of the versions of being a monk that you spoke of you know um sacrificing things that are legitimate goods for a greater good and love can appear to be foolish as uh, St. Paul says, you know, it, it draws us out of ourselves and leaves certain things behind. And I think that was the point I was really trying to get at, is that as a Christian people, if we're really um, seeking to follow Christ and spending time in communion with his love, other things will not only become secondary, but we'll begin to just drop away from our life, worldly influences, um, worldly attachments. But there is a place, too, of actually renouncing those things so that um, we can experience God's love in a greater way and become more faithful to his commands. You know, in, inherently in faith is, is this element of obedience and in love. Um, faith and love require kind of like this this total submission of ourselves. And Jesus very much not only preached a renunciation of, of certain things, but he lived it. You know, him and his apostles and his disciples and the early Christian community that we read about in, in Acts of the Apostles. So that's something I'm thinking about that needs to be talked about because in most parishes, you know, rarely are people challenged to give up worldly things and worldly ways and um, the things of the world and embrace a simple life, a life of, you know, poverty in, in a certain way. Maybe that's too loaded of a word right now to use, but a simple life, um, a life that doesn't include a lot of entertainment, but focuses on cultivating uh, new ways of being in relationship with the world around us and with each other. As far as building a community, a priest I know said that it's it's like this. You need, in a building, you need a foundation of a Christian identity, because without a foundation, the building will not stand up. But if there's no door to the building, you might as well have not put it up because mm -hmm. nobody will be able to get in. And that's outreach to the world. 
And without either of the, the foundation may be more important in the ultimate sense, since a building can stand up without a door, but without the door, the meaning of the building is lost. So I, I thought that was a really good way to put the relation between the two. That's beautiful because, and it, it makes me think of our churches right now as churches with locked doors, closed and locked to the outside world, even to their own, actually to, the own, to their own communities, um, to their own parishioners and congregation. Um, our churches are generally locked throughout the day, open for specific services um, on the weekend, but it, it, how, can, how can there be an intimacy or a, a community when the building in which that happens is, is closed, locked, and unoccupied except for the, the Blessed Sacrament that is inherently relational? Peter, that's a perfect illustration of how dysfunctional our society currently is. And that's also probably a good place to end this episode because in our next episode, we'll tackle the really big question. What can we do to remedy this state of affairs? Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Malcolm. It was a pleasure.